I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a challenging time for state and local officials. We're having to rapidly embrace a 24-7 digital world in the midst of a pandemic. Luckily, iConstituent.com is on a mission to help digitize services with the first platform designed specifically for the elected official to manage one-to-one personal engagement. See for yourself how their texting outreach tools are making positive impacts during the pandemic, from the city of Los Angeles to the halls of the U.S. Congress. They allow leaders to leverage data sets of constituent phone numbers to share updates on COVID and assist constituents with breaking through the red tape to get the help they need. Visit iConstituent.com to access recent case studies and get started with 5,000 text messages at no cost. Again, that's iConstituent.com. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. I'm proud to say that we're closing in on both our second anniversary and our 50th episode. The New Deal and I are grateful to have shared some amazing leaders with you during that time. From Mayor Pete, when he was just a mayor, to rising stars in the Democratic Party like Senator Ramesh Akberry, Boise Mayor Lauren McLean, and Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. I believe that these leaders deserve a national stage. I hope you will help them, and me, by telling a friend about an honorable profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And guess what? We're now on Instagram. Follow us at hashtag an honorable profession. Welcome to a special episode of An Honorable Profession. A couple weeks ago at an online bookshop Santa Cruz event, I had a great conversation with Jesse Wegman about his new book, Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. The conversation was so good and the topic so essential and relevant, we should all be losing sleep over it right about now, that I thought it needed to be heard by a broader audience. Jesse Wegman is a member of the New York Times editorial board where he's written about the Supreme Court and legal affairs since 2013. He previously worked as a reporter, editor, and producer at outlets including National Public Radio, the New York Observer, and Reuters. He's a graduate of the New York University School of Law. So I want to jump right in. And this book, um, it's if all political reform books were this readable and entertaining, there would be a lot more political reform. And uh, it is a uh, accessible, there's characters, there's cliffhangers and plots. Um, Jesse Wegman's done a really good job at outlining the case for abolishing the Electoral College. And for those uh, who haven't read the book, I'm going to ask Jesse to make his uh, five-minute pitch for uh, why this institution needs to go and sort of why you became passionate about it enough to write a book. Sure. Well, uh, thanks, Ryan, and, and thank you, Carell, and to the uh, Bookshop Santa Cruz family for having me. This is uh, a really exciting opportunity for me to talk to you all. I, um, I'm sorry it can't happen in person, but uh, it's actually just a treat uh, to be able to, to talk to people all over the country uh, in places that uh, I can't be uh, physically now. So thanks for inviting me into your homes and, and to the store. Um, you know, I started this book uh, shortly after uh, Donald Trump was elected through the Electoral College, the second time in uh, most of our, our lifetimes that, uh, that this has happened. And, you know, I thought it was a fairly obvious 
point then that I think most people agree with um, this, uh, the idea that uh, the, the person who wins the most votes should be the president. I, I think most people agree with that, uh, with that principle. And uh, when they say they don't, uh, really, it just means it didn't happen for them the last time. Uh, I think the on the inside uh, flap of the book jacket, I have this famous quote from Donald Trump, the Electoral College is a disaster for a democracy. Why did Donald Trump tweet that? He tweeted that on 2012, on election night in 2012, when he thought uh, briefly that Mitt Romney was going to win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College to Barack Obama. So it's just a, a shorthand way of showing that everybody hates the Electoral College when they, when they think it's going to hurt them. It's hurt Democrats twice in the last 20 years. Uh, but that says nothing about its uh, ideological or partisan balance. It really just it, it hurts everybody uh, for reasons we'll talk about. I, but I want to say a little bit more, which is that, you know, I wrote this book. I researched and wrote it in uh, a, a different world. As, as Carell uh, mentioned in her uh, uh, really nice introduction, um, you know, the country is now undergoing two really traumatic and, and convulsive events with uh, the pandemic on the one hand and now um, the sort of uh, the protests uh, uh, and in the response to police brutality and the, and the mistreatment of uh, uh, black and brown uh, uh, citizens in particular. Um, and I think I actually, you know, at, at first I, I didn't immediately see all the connections, but now I actually think there, there are some important ties uh, that, that tie the argument of this book and the uh, ideals behind it into this moment. Uh, on the one hand is the pandemic, which has so uh, upended so many of our assumptions about how things work. Um, we have seen very quickly that the way the world is is not necessarily the way the world has to be. Um, and things that we thought were set in stone are suddenly not. Uh, people are working from home. People are uh, living in different places. People are uh, just living their lives differently. And, and it's leading us to also question, I think, some very uh, fundamental institutions that we live with. I think the Electoral College is one of these, and I think it gives us a chance. Something upending as this as this pandemic, I think really lets us step back and say, wait a minute, is the world the way that it is, the way that it has to be, or are there other, other, other possibilities? So I really think we're in a moment of unique political opportunity here, and it's one that we should, that we should try to take advantage of. Um, and then on the other point, the point about um, the protests and the, and the really like uh, astonishing galvanizing of sentiment around the country that's been going on for weeks, uh, months in some cases now, since, since, the, since the murder of George Floyd um, by the police officer in Minneapolis. I really think, you know, what that is about in, in so many ways is the silencing of the voices of so many Americans, particularly those of color. And I think it's it's a it's a cry for saying listen to us listen to our listen to our voices let us be a part of this political community uh, of this legal community we are not being included and we are not getting to be decision makers in how we are treated in this country uh, that's obviously been a problem for much longer than the last three months but. The voices are really speaking up more loudly now. And that's really what's at the heart of the challenge to the Electoral College as well, is that it silences millions of Americans' voices. It makes them feel completely irrelevant to the choice of the leader of the country and basically ignored by the two major parties that run the country. And uh, that, that is especially true for black Americans who have, from the beginning, been systematically kept out of the way we choose the president, whether as slaves or through Jim Crow or through other forms of uh, voting suppression that we see going all the way through today. So I really think that movement for the um, 
the hearing of our voices and the hearing of the voices of people who have not been heard throughout American history is very deeply connected to our efforts to change the way we choose the president of the United States. Mentioned voting rights. I mean, there's an effort now to honor John Lewis uh, by passing a, a new voting rights act. Um, there's gerrymandering, there's money in politics. There's so much of our system that needs to be reformed. Um, and, you know, there's only so much oxygen for political systemic reform. How does this fit into those other efforts or not? Yeah, no, it's a great question because generally um, electoral reform is a pretty dry topic, right? People aren't turned on by talking about voting rights. And, and, you know, I think the last real major push we had was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is a, you know, a crucial moment in American history, right? It, it really puts teeth into the 15th Amendment, which had been ratified 100 years earlier and yet never really uh, followed by the states. And it, and it really turned America into the closest thing that it has ever been to a true democracy. Um, at least then, until, until it was eviscerated a couple years ago. Yeah. <laughs> at least until yeah, the Supreme Court uh, basically gutted it in 2013. Um, sorry, I, I shouldn't laugh about this. This is, yeah. uh, this is really uh, it, it, what, the, what the court has done uh, to voting rights is really uh, deserves its own book. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, the Electoral College has an even uh, tougher uh, uh, obstacle, which is that it, it doesn't even, it's not even relevant to people all the time, or doesn't feel relevant, I should say, to people all the time. It's once every four years, right? So we are right now entering the home stretch to a presidential election. It only happens once every four years. And really, it's only right around now, uh, even in non-pandemic times, that Americans start tuning in and thinking about how do we choose the leader of our country? And when that happens is when I think you have that moment to grab onto. Um, as I said in my uh, initial answer, I really think this is an unusual moment, one we haven't seen since the late 1960s, a political tumult and a sort of social ferment where people are rethinking what it means to be an American, what it means to have a democracy in the 21st century, who is included in that democracy and who is not. And I think Donald Trump in some ways is really doing us a favor by laying out quite explicitly uh, his vision uh, of what American democracy is, uh, and it's a, and you know from my perspective, it's a very exclusive one. It's a very uh, hierarchical and uh, discriminatory one. But you know, it, uh, you know, I'm I'm in favor of majority rule, and so we're going to see if most people agree with that. They did in 2016. I think they will again in 2020. Uh, but I think the fact that most people could agree and Donald Trump could still be reelected is what is so offensive to our basic ideals of. Uh, democratic rule, which which include the idea of majority rule, that the, that the majority will uh, governs the day. So I really think when people can focus on that and think about how much that central ideal uh, of our democracy is violated by the Electoral College, I think then you have that opportunity to say, think about, you know, think about changing the system while we have a chance. And can you talk, to, like, how did we get this historically and there's a lot of myths around the Electoral College that you explode. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's sort of the, the basis and then what's the arguments for not doing it and why are they wrong? Sure. Um, what are the arguments for not? For, for not, not abolishing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the story behind the adoption of the college is a fascinating one that I learned much more about uh, in researching this book. I was actually embarrassed that I didn't know it better. 
Um, you know, I went to college, I went to law school. <laughs> you know, I have a law degree and I didn't know a lot of the history here. Um, so I was a little bit uh, chastened by, by that. Uh, but I really got, I, I got, I was fascinated as I read uh, the histories of the uh, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, what led up to it, what came out of it, uh, scholar, scholarly responses to it both at the time and, and more currently. And I think one of the main points to take away from it is that, you know, the story that most of us grew up learning is that the Electoral College was a sort of a part of the framers' intricate design of our constitutional system, that they put it there just as they put all the other elements of our system in there, the Senate and the House of Representatives and the presidency and the Supreme Court. And it was all very carefully thought out and, and laid out as a checks and system of checks and balances and brilliant by brilliant you know men with foresight and perspicacity. And you know, it's just it's not true. Uh, the founders were brilliant men. They were brilliant political theorists. They 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 understood quite a lot, in fact, uh, about both human nature and how political systems uh, could and should work. They also got a lot of things wrong. And I think one of the things that you learn when you look at the convention and how the founders um, put together this system is that they had no idea how to choose a national leader of a republic. I mean, they were doing this for the first time in world history. No one had done it before. So they were like, they were drawing on all kinds of influences. They were arguing with each other. They fought the entire summer about this. There was no issue that was more vexing to them over the course of that summer in 1787. They said this after the fact. They said it was, no, it was the hardest thing we had to decide. They started debating it at the beginning of the convention at the end of May, and they did not finish until the final days in early September when a few delegates just got together in a side room of the convention hall and basically hammered the thing out after nobody could agree on any, any method. And the system that they came up with, today we call the Electoral College, they did not call it that. Um, and that system, was basically, with, with some important uh, adjustments over the years, that is the system that we still live with today. And the, the important thing to remember is that they didn't really think ahead about how it would play out because they knew that whatever system they put in place, George Washington was going to be the president. It was, it was a done deal to them. George Washington was sitting there. He was the presiding officer in that convention hall. They were they all admired him. He was the most respected man in America. They knew he would be the president, and so it sort of didn't matter uh, what system they chose. As it turned out, the system that they did choose collapsed almost immediately. Within a decade after the ratification of the Constitution, political parties, national political parties, had begun to develop. And this was not something the framers had anticipated, and it completely changed the way the Electoral College ran. It did not operate as the framers claimed that they that it should which is as this um body of deliberative um men who would uh, know more than the rest of us and make the right decision about who should lead the country it was basically what it is today which is two teams battling it out fighting for, for fighting for their sides and not really caring about who was best for the country it was who's on my team and who's the leader of my team that happened as soon as 1796 and it happens today so you know, there's there are other really important elements in there too, which include slavery, which I'd like to talk about. But as as a as a general matter, that the main th the main point I want to get across here is just that it was not a carefully designed part of the system. It was a last minute cobbled together compromise that really nobody thought about beyond that first election and getting George Washington into uh, into power. Yeah, the Constitution is very much a political document. 
as, as, as a legal document. Can you talk about the, the uh, implications and connections of slavery? Because I think it is important yeah. in this time and place to recognize that. Absolutely. So obviously, slavery, the maintenance of slavery as an institution, the protection of the interests of the slaveholding states in the South, those, those things were central to every deal that happened at the Constitutional Convention. Our Constitution is, is threaded through with protections of slavery and acknowledgments of the interests of slavers, right? And we know this uh, from just our basic history. This is not, I'm not revealing anything here. I think the part that I think a lot of people didn't know until recently when some historians and legal scholars have really been calling attention to it is how the Electoral College itself is really a product of those compromises. So the biggest compromises at the Constitutional Convention were the two that created our national legislature, right? The Senate and the House of Representatives. And both of those contain really built-in protections for the slavers. So the Senate gives every state an equal voice, right? That means that states, uh, no matter how big their population, uh, would have, or no, how, no matter, I should say, how big their voting population, would have equal power in the national legislature. That's an incredible sop to the slave states uh, who were keeping, you know, up to 50% of the residents living there in chains and obviously not allowed to vote. Then you have the House of Representatives, which is in theory the, 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 the people's house, right? The, the house that, that represents people by their population, states by their populations and not just as states. And yet even there, they introduced the three-fifths clause, which is the, you know, the notorious uh, compromise by which uh, slave states were allowed to count their slaves as three-fifths of a free white person for the purposes of representation in Congress. That meant that these slave states had more representation in Congress and thus more political power as a result of their slaves, who, who obviously were, were you know, human who were property, they, they couldn't vote. And that actually altered the outcome of elections throughout the early 19th century. Uh, there, there was no secret about this. They called it the slave power. Um, you know, it's, it's generally understood that Thomas Jefferson won in 1800, uh, in large part due to the fact that slave states in the South had more representatives in the House and therefore more electoral votes than they would have without being yeah. able to count three fifths of their slaves. So that's a really, I mean, our, our method of picking the president is literally threaded through with, uh, with, with slavery and with the protection of slavers and with the treatment of black people as property rather than as, as equal citizens. Um, it follows through all the way to today, I think. Uh, you see it through Jim Crow, even after the Civil War, the three-fifths clause is eliminated. In the 14th Amendment, uh, slavery is obviously abolished. It sounds, that sounds great, right? But now, because of the, the, the rise of Jim Crow and the, and the, and the vicious voter suppression that, that came on the heels of Reconstruction in the South, black people were now counted as five-fifths of a person, and yet they still couldn't vote. They were still kept out of the polling places either by terrorism and, and murder or state-sanctioned, uh, you know, uh, uh, attacks, or by, you know, more insidious methods such as literacy tests and poll taxes. And so here it was, the South was still getting to count their black now citizens as full people, and yet they still weren't getting to vote. And even today, we can see the echoes of that persist in the South, where black voters overwhelmingly cast ballots for Democrats, and yet they're completely erased when it comes to the Electoral College because of the statewide winner-take-all rule. 
uh, that, that came up a little earlier, that rule which says states, you know, states adopt that rule, it means they give all of their electoral votes to the person who wins the most votes in the state. In the South, uh, you know, there are, in, in most of those Southern states, there are more white voters than black voters and the white, you know, the, the voting there is very politically polarized. So white voters vote for Republicans, black for Democrats. That means that the, all those black voters, millions and millions of black voters across the South are, are basically invisible in the voting for president. So from, from the very founding until today, we see the echoes of slavery repeating again and again and again to keep black people in particular from having any real say in our political system. Yeah, I think um, Alex Kesar, Stanford uh, scholar, writes that, you know, the American democracy experiment is as much about uh, allowing, uh, preventing people from having the right to vote as it is about having the right to vote. And the the, the announcement this week, the, the Trump administration trying not to count uh, yeah. undocumented people as citizens in the Classic. sense that, yeah, is, is another way to contort power um, through this, through this, this apportionment process. Yep. Uh, so where, how likely is it that, uh, that we can move change? Amending the constitution is very hard. You cite the 700 times, uh, it's been tried. Uh, but this compact is a potential talk us through what it is and then how likely it is that we can, um, get it put into place. Sure. So those 700, more than now, more than 700, probably approaching 800 efforts now throughout American history to in Congress to amend or abolish the Electoral College. That is just to, if that's, I mean, maybe nobody knows how often people try to <laughs> change the Constitution. That's a lot of efforts. Uh, it is far more than for any other uh, single provision of the Constitution, far more. And I think the reason for that is self-evident, which is, People have seen throughout American history the unfairness of this system. Uh, James Madison himself uh, tried to amend the Constitution to abolish the state winner-take-all rule. I'll explain in a minute just how that rule is so pernicious and why it, it is so distorting of our national politics. But throughout American history, there have been these efforts, right? They've been, they've been in Congress. They've been attempts to uh, amend or abolish the Electoral College through, uh, through the Constitution, uh, constitutional amendment process. Um, there has been one successful attempt, and that was the 12th Amendment, uh, which was ratified in 1804 very quickly. Uh, it was, uh, it, it changed, it, it dealt with the um, disaster that had, had occurred in 1800, uh, where the original design of the Electoral College had not, had not, as I said before, counted on the existence of political parties. And so the framers gave all the electors two votes, and the understanding was they would just cast their ballots for the two people they thought were the the best to lead the country, the person who got the most votes would become president, and the person who got the next most votes would become vice president. And it didn't occur to them that those people might be from different parties. It also didn't occur to them that the votes might tie, which is what happened in 1800. And there was no way for the voters, the electors, I should say, to distinguish who they wanted to be president and who they wanted to be vice president. So the 1800 election was a complete disaster. It nearly toppled the young country uh, before it could really get off the ground because of this fight over who was going to lead the nation. Uh, eventually, uh, thanks to Alexander Hamilton's uh, backroom shenanigans, uh, Thomas Jefferson becomes the president. And then Jefferson says, we're not letting that happen again. <laughs> they, 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 they passed the, uh, the 12th Amendment and we have our one reform, our one constitutional reform of the Electoral College. Now, it's actually a very important reform. Uh, I, I won't go into it so much here, but just to, to make the point that there has been that one successful attempt. Um, the only other 
time we got really close to abolishing the Electoral College was in the late 1960s. And I, I tell this story in my book, in chapter five of my book, and it's when Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana led a four-year effort uh, to, to, to amend the Constitution, to amend the Electoral College uh, out of the Constitution and replace it with a national popular vote. Nobody remembers this, even though yeah. it was an extremely effective uh, uh, um, you know, uh, campaign, he ended up getting more than 80% of the American people on his side by the end in the late 1960s. Uh, this included Republicans, Democrats all over the country, top Republicans, including at then President Richard Nixon, uh, George H.W. Bush, Bob Dole, Gerald Ford. They all supported it. Everybody wanted to move to a popular vote for president. The House of Representatives passed an amendment to abolished the Electoral College, the only time in American history that's happened, by an overwhelming vote of, I think, 339 to 70. Um, and the states looked like there were enough states that were there that were ready to ratify it that we were going to abolish the college in 1970. It was stopped by uh, the Senate, in a filibuster in the Senate, by the Southern segregationists, including Strom Thurmond, I think is the most well-known of them. Uh, and for the reasons that we've discussed, which is that they knew which side their bread was buttered on. They knew that, 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 that they held, that white people in particular held power in the South and in the country um, through the mechanism of the Electoral College and specifically that winner take all rule. Now, that all said, you asked, what, what, what possibility is there for reform going forward and specifically the interstate compact? And I guess actually, just before that, because I had forgotten yeah. that story or I didn't know that story. And I was surprised how much small state support there was, because the argument always is the small states will never support it. Yeah. But in fact, you show that it was the small states were fine. It yes. was the segregationist Southern Democrats. This is this is the amazing part of the story. And, and Professor Kesar, who you mentioned, is a, is a superb historian on this count. And he's actually just published his own book or is about to publish his own book on the Electoral College's history in which he really goes in depth on this. And it's, I recommend it to all of you as a superb uh, historian and, a, and an excellent book. Um, this, it was not, you know, contrary to one of, another one of these myths about the college. It, you know, we talked about the myth of the founders and, you know, shaping this carefully. It is not, it does, it, it was not intended to protect small states and it doesn't actually protect the small states. The small states understood this in the 1960s. Actually, many of them, many of the senators of small states were ready to vote for that amendment. They were signed on, they were sponsors of it. And in the House of Representatives, small states, members of small states. And that's because they saw that this winner take all rule, this rule that 48 out of 50 states currently use, which is we give all of our electors to the winner of the statewide vote, no matter how close that vote is, if it's by a single vote, by a million votes, doesn't matter. We give them all to the winner of the statewide vote was deeply, deeply uh, destructive to their political power. And in fact, it's a, this is an interesting side story. Delaware actually sued New York in 1966 in the federal courts for a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment for using this winner-take-all rule, saying, this isn't fair. You guys are huge. We're tiny. There's no way we can possibly compete with you. You have, I don't know how many electoral votes New York had then. It was probably 20, 25. Now it has 29. Um, Delaware has three, right? It's the small, right. or, or three or four. It's a small one of the smallest in the country. Like, they said that we can never compete with you when, when, it, when our three votes are up against your 29. It's not fair. They actually brought this case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court dismissed it without hearing it. Um, so, uh, and actually a similar litigation has been brought in the last year, uh, uh, but it, it also hasn't uh, fared very well. 
So that is a fascinating part of the story, right? That, that small states have always understood that the Electoral College does not inure to their benefit. It actually harms them. And that's really where we get to the idea of this compact. So what is the compact? The compact is, a, is an agreement among states. Uh, it's, states do this all the time. They enter into interstate compacts. Uh, they're basically contracts that states join to do something together, say, um, negotiate water rights over a body of water that uh, they share or to set up a, a, a multi-state lottery system. We're seeing it even debated right now as, you know, with the federal government fumbling its, in its response to the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing um, states joining together possibly to get, you know, pr pr protective gear for healthcare workers or, you know, I mean, it's, it's insane that they should have to do this, but it, yeah. it, is, a, it is a means of, uh, interstate compacts are a means of doing things like that. This interstate compact is called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It was created about 15 years ago by a computer scientist named John Koza, uh, who lives in Northern California, and uh, not far from uh, uh, you all in Santa Cruz. And uh, he, he basically put together several ideas that have been floating around, uh, and he came up with, I think, what is a really clever and elegant solution to this problem. And what, he's do, what, what he does is, the states that join the compact agree to award their electoral votes to the winner, not of their statewide vote, but to the winner of all of the votes in all 50 states. Whoever wins the most votes in all 50 states gets that state's electoral votes. And they only, they don't start doing it now. They only do it once states representing a majority of electoral votes in the country have joined on. Why is that? The reason is so that you're guaranteed once the, ele once the compact takes effect to elect the president, to elect as the president, the person who won the most votes in the country. And that's really the essence of the problem here is that because of this winner take all rule, you have what are called safe states and you have what are called swing states, right? And that's, we all know that terminology. Uh, we all see the map every four years, that red and blue, those red and blue blocks. And we think that's America, California's a blue state and you know, Texas is a red state. And in fact, you know, it's just not true. The country is purple from coast to coast. There are millions of Republicans in California. There are millions of Democrats in Texas and every, the same story is everywhere. But, the, but because of this winner take all rule, when a state is far enough apart between the two parties, they don't even bother contesting it because nothing they do, no amount of campaigning or of ad buys or of appeals to that state's representative uh, uh, citizens is gonna change the outcome in that state. And that is the case in about 40 to 45 states every year, which means the candidates of both parties could not care less about what goes on in those states. They only focus on the so-called swing states, where the, where, the, where the margin of polling is so close that you really could make a difference if you go to that state enough, if you campaign there, if you have a policy platform that appeals to the voters in that state, say you support fracking in Pennsylvania, you know, like <laughs> these kinds of things that are very, very, very specific policy interests in specific slivers of the country. There's 330 million Americans, and yet 78,000 people in three swing states in 2016 decided the election for all of us. And I think that's really the core of the corrosiveness of the way the Electoral College operates today. What the compact understands, and what is so, I think, ingenious about it, is that this isn't how it has to be, and it doesn't require a constitutional amendment to change it. And that's because that winner-take-all rule that I keep mentioning, that is not in the Constitution. It's nowhere in the Constitution. It was never talked about at the Constitutional Convention. No founder ever mentioned it or thought it, or, or but for it, we have any evidence that they even thought about it. 
it is a state law. States pass it as a law as a way to give themselves as much political clout as they can because they can say to their preferred candidate, hey, if you get the most votes in our state, we're going to give you all of our electors. Isn't that that gives a state a lot of political clout? So you could change the states can change that law tomorrow. So the states, there are now 15 states and the District of Columbia have joined this compact and they have agreed that once states representing 270 electoral votes join together, they will, they will award their electors differently than they do today. They will award their electors to the person who wins the most votes in the entire country. There's, those 15 states in DC now represent 196 electoral votes. That means 74, 74 more electoral votes join and the compact kicks in. We elect the president by a popular vote and the candidates have to care about everyone in the country, not just the swing states. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. As proof, if you haven't already, I encourage you to listen to our recent episodes with leaders like Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, Tolis and Arizona Mayor Anna Tovar, and John McCarthy, the Deputy Political Director for the Joe Biden Campaign. You can find these episodes at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Now, here's my conversation with Jesse Wegman. To a question that we've gotten, a good question we've gotten from Esther, uh, after the 2020 election, do you think there will be uh, the political momentum and interest for those remaining 74 electors, uh, electoral votes from states to, yeah. be, to be added to the compact? It's a great question. Um, the course of the compacts, uh, the adoption of the compact has been really interesting to watch. So it started, as I said, in 2004. I think it got its first member state in 2007. I tell the story of the compact's creation and of its development in the book in chapter seven. Um, Maryland was the first member state and then states just kind of have kept joining. We actually, I think there were roughly four or even six states that joined in 2019. And that was after the 2018 midterms, a lot of uh, democratic uh, there was a there was a lot of democratic takeover of a lot of state houses, which led to the passage of the of the compact in those states, and that reveals a, a pattern we've been seeing, which is that all of the 15 states and D.C. are led, or, or were led at the time they passed the compact by Democrats. Um, that makes it look as though this is a democratic plot to take over America um, by some backdoor uh, effort. It's actually just not true. The compact is run by a group of uh, political activists and consultants who are both Democratic and Republican. There are Trump supporters uh, who are involved in this compact. I was just talking to one of them today. He and I agree on probably nothing else in American <laughs> politics except this issue. He, he, he feels as strongly as I do on the, uh, on the principle, about the principle that we need to elect the president, in, that electing the president requires treating all votes equally and making sure that all votes in the country matter, not just the votes of a few thousand voters in some swing states. So the problem is, how do you get the red states, and I hate using even that terminology, how do you get states led by Republicans to join the compact? Well, in fact, they were quite close to passing the compact in three Republican states in 2016. Uh, uh, Georgia, Utah, and Arizona were all very close, and then we had the election. And the election repartisanized, if you will, the issue, because it again reminded people that the Republican had benefited from this system. The Democrat had suffered. Everyone sort of ran to their corners 
and nobody wanted to talk about it any, again. So it really set back the cause of the compact. But the point is that Republicans were starting to see during the Obama era, when Obama seemed to have a lock and Democrats more broadly seemed to have a lock on the Electoral College, Republicans were starting to see, oh, this isn't a good system for us. And remember, remember what I said earlier is that people like or dislike the college, not based on principle for the most part, but because of whether they think it's gonna help them, their party win. So Republicans were starting to see this. And I guarantee you, for example, uh, as your, 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 uh, the, the questioner asked, um, is there gonna be momentum to change the system? I guarantee you, I'm, I'm hoping we don't have another split election uh, for many reasons. Uh, one of which is that I think it's just very traumatic to the country uh, to have a, a non-majority uh, president. Um, another is, uh, I, I personally don't want to see Donald Trump in office for four more years. Uh, but um, here's what I can tell you. Even if there is not another split, usually it's the splits I, I think we've seen, uh, the splits that kind of generate the most visceral re reaction in Americans, right? How, how can we elect a, a president who lost the popular vote, right? People get really upset about that. Even if that doesn't happen, here's where I think, what I think you could see happen. First of all, if, the if there was a split, but it went the other way, meaning the Republican won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College, the Electoral College would be gone tomorrow. Um, but I think, for example, let's look at Texas. Everyone's talking right now about Texas possibly going for Joe Biden. Um, that just means like, I, I don't think, I think it's unlikely to happen, but you know, Trump's, Trump's uh, style of uh, leadership or, or whatever you want to call it uh, is, is not, uh, engendering a lot of uh, traditional support in conservative areas, in some conservative areas, and uh, Democrats are, are particularly uh, energized, Texas is gonna be close. If Texas ever goes for the Democrat, forget it. The Republicans will quickly see that, there isn't, they have no path to the presidency without Texas. If, if, Dem if Democrats win Texas, I think you're gonna see Republicans starting to say, wait a minute, this is not the way <laughs> to elect a president. So that's one possible path. But I agree that if, if say, Texas stays, you know, uh, in, 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 the, in the Republicans' corner and if Joe Biden wins the popular vote in the Electoral College, I, I, I fear that the issue will recede into the background because we have so many things to worry about and it will be four years before we even have to think about this again. That, to me, would be a tragedy because part of the message of my book and what I really want to get across is that the Electoral College is causing harm to our politics and our policy, even when the candidate who wins the most popular votes wins the presidency, wins the Electoral College. And that is because of this swing state, safe state problem. It means that the president and the candidates for president care only about those, small, those states and their interests. And they focus the vast majority of their attention, their advertising, their policy platforms and proposals to those states. And that really is a distortion of the, the greater American polity and what people want in this country, what majorities of people want in this country. Absolutely. Can, just for fun, can, can you talk about the, the role of the faithless elector and what you think would have happened in 2016 had the electors gotten together and said, um, we'll elect John Kasich or whoever it is, uh, we're not going to put Donald Trump into office. What kind of conversation will we be having right now? I don't know if we'd be here. <laughs> uh, that would have been a, a trauma on top of a trauma. Um, the faithless elector issue is a really uh, is a really fascinating one, and it reveals so much about our assumptions about what the electoral college even is. 
Um, just to very, very quickly for people who aren't uh, uh, familiar with this, um, this was actually a case that the Supreme Court just decided a, a few weeks ago. Um, a faithless elector is someone who uh, votes for a candidate other than the candidate he or she is pledged to vote for. And um, we have a question just, how, who are these electors and where are they coming yeah, from? Even before right? they're faithless. Exactly. Great question. <laughs> Don't you want to know who the people, the 538 people are who are choosing the president for you? You won't know because they're <laughs> random people who are chosen by political, you know, uh, muckety mucks in their local air, you know, in local county offices and in, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're basically partisan loyalists who are tapped because of their partisan loyalty. And this is why the faithless elector issue is kind of a to me has always been a side issue. I've never been convinced that it's ever gonna make a difference. There have only been a couple dozen faithless electors in American history out of something like 23,000 electoral votes cast. And that's because electors don't wanna be faithless. They're chosen because they want to vote for their candidate. Here's something I don't think many people may understand about the electoral college. There isn't just a group of electors in every state sitting around waiting for their you know, marching orders from the people. You know, California, where you are, has 55 electoral votes. Um, that's because you have, you get your, your electoral votes are based on your representation in Congress. So your members of the House plus your two senators. California has 53 House members plus two senators, 55 electoral votes. There aren't 55 people in California waiting for marching orders. There are 55 electors that the Democratic candidate has, and there are 55 electors that the Republican candidate has. And whichever candidate wins the most votes in California, that candidate sends his or her electors to the state capitol in Sacramento to cast their ballots uh, for president on December 19th. Those people were chosen because they supported Hillary Clinton or the Republicans were chosen because they support Donald Trump. They don't want to vote for someone else. The reason that we had this story, this thing happen in 2016, and, and I spend the introduction of my book telling the story. It's a crazy story that already it's a crazy story. four years ago people have forgotten yeah. was there was this attempt by a group of electors to try to get uh, it was it was Democratic electors who started it, but they were they called themselves Hamilton electors after Alexander Hamilton, who you know who who wrote the Federalist Paper that claimed that electors voted on, uh, based on their conscience. They were independent thinkers who were supposed to vote on their conscience. Um, even even Hamilton didn't really believe that, as I as I explain in the book. But the bottom line is that was the story that we were all told, and so these guys called themselves Hamilton electors, and they said, "Listen, Donald Trump is a menace. He is the most unfit person ever to." win uh, you know, uh, the presidency in the nation's history, we have to keep him out of the White House. We can do it as electors. They reached out to their Republican counterparts in states that Donald Trump had won. And they said, listen, let's find a compromise candidate. We know you won't like Hillary Clinton, but what about John Kasich? <laughs> you know, John Kasich is like the formerly, you know, the sort of moderate, uh, at least in today's terms, moderate Republican governor of Ohio. He had run for president that year. He had dropped out because he didn't have any support. Uh, because nobody wanted a moderate, right? So Kasich himself was like, I'm not doing, I'm not playing this game. I have no interest. Donald Trump was elected. Donald Trump's going to be the president. But what these, uh, these electors tried to do, they were faithless electors. They said, if we can get, I think they counted it up and they figured that Trump had won 306 to 232 or whatever the, whatever the initial split was. They said, if we can get 37 Republican electors to peel away and to vote for someone else, we can keep Donald Trump from getting a majority of electoral votes. Remember that number, 270. They want to get him below 270. And then we can, anything can happen. Uh, we can throw the election to the House of Representatives, which is a whole other story about what the Electoral College does, which I don't even, I can't even, don't even have time to get into right now, but it would be a disaster if that happened. Uh, 
it, it would be a disaster. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they did not succeed. They actually got, I think, two Republicans to come over and vote for a candidate other than uh, Donald Trump. Um, in fact, more Democratic electors uh, peeled off from Hillary Clinton than peeled off from Donald Trump. And that was, those were protest votes, obviously. She had lost by that point. But the whole idea was like, who are these people and why are we letting them make this this monumentally important decision for us? You know, right. the guy I talked to in the book who led the cause, My Michael Baca, and he was he was the plaintiff in the Supreme Court case. He said to me, I shouldn't be making this, this, these decisions for other people. If I weren't me, I would be very concerned about what I'm doing. But he felt that he had to do it as a to save the republic. Um, it didn't work. Uh, it would never work. Uh, if you want another example, look at 2000, the last time the Electoral College went the other way. You know, Donald Trump had a pretty healthy lead in the Electoral College. Remember 2000? George W. Bush led by a, he had one vote over the uh, over what he needed. He had 271 electors. All you needed was two electors to defect in 2000, just two. And he would not have, he, you would have thrown the election into the House of Representatives. You couldn't even get two. So the, it goes back to what I was saying. Electors are partisan actors. They are just regular people like you and me who get tapped by their local political leaders to play this role once every four years. They go and they do it and then they're done. They want to vote for their party's leader and Faith, I just think the issue of faithless electors, uh, it frightened everyone for a while this year with what the Supreme Court might decide. I think the Supreme Court made the right decision, uh, which is to say states can um, replace faithless electors. If an elector says, oh, I'm going to vote for whoever the hell I want, a state can say, no, you won't. And they dump them and they pick somebody else who will vote for the candidate they're supposed to vote for. And I think that is the right decision in the end. And I think I, I just think faithless electors is not our salvation. Uh, so uh, we have a couple questions I want to make sure I get to, which is, uh, one is the question of whether this is another form of voter suppression. I think you covered that. It is a way, especially in the South, uh, to minimize uh, African-American votes, uh, and, um, and it is absolutely a rule. I want to ask you in terms of, um, so... The Electoral College is the end of an election, the ends, uh, and, but this, but changing the rules changes the means, right? So it yeah. changes how elections are run. And you talk to sort of top political strategists on both sides to say, okay, like if we change this, if the compact yeah. comes in, into force, what does a presidential campaign look like? Yeah. So tell us what it looks like. This was like, in some ways, I mean, I loved writing this book. I loved do, learning about American history and, and talking to people, you know, who had been involved in earlier efforts. But, but in some ways, the most fun part was talking to these political strategists, these campaign managers and field directors who had run Republican and Democratic presidential campaigns over the last 25 years and saying to them, you guys, this is your job. What, what did you do to win the Electoral College and what would you do differently to win the popular vote? And almost to a person, on both sides of the aisle, they all said they would prefer a popular vote election and running a popular vote election. And that's because they understand better than probably anybody the distortions that the current system introduces. And I think what they what they would say and what they did say to me is, you know, when it comes to moderating our, our political culture, when it comes to inc increasing political participation among citizens who would suddenly feel like, oh, my vote matters. It actually, Californians might feel like, wow, I should come out to the polls, both Democrats and Republicans, right? Right now, Democrats in California may not vote because they're like, either way, my, my candidate's gonna win. Republicans aren't gonna come out and vote because they say, either way, my, my candidate's gonna lose. 
keeps people home. In swing states, you see this every four years, in swing states, turnout is significantly higher than it is in non-swing states for a very obvious reason, which is when people know that their vote matters to the outcome, they're more likely to vote. So these political strategists really thought, you know, of course, right now, the way they do it is they target the parts of the country that you need to target to win. What is a political strategist there for? What is a campaign manager for? It's to win, right? And they all said to me, we would rather do it this way. It, it increases turnout, it increases participation, it decreases polarization, because when more people are involved, you naturally, I think, you get away from the extremes who are the people who are the, the most head up on both sides about these issues, and you get more people involved who I think are just more generally moderate. And then it also increases presidential legitimacy, because I just think, going back to the original idea, in a modern democratic system, in a modern constitutional republic, whatever you want to call America, majority rule is the name of the game. It's how we decide every single election in this country, except for the biggest one of all. And I think people fundamentally get that it, it, it is delegitimizing of a president to be thrust into office on the backs of a minority of voters. And so I really think that that, that reform is the fundamental reform to both making the country a, a more sort of accurate reflection, making the outcome more accurately reflect the political makeup of the country, and also involving Americans more in their politics and feeling more connected to their leaders. Uh, and I, I just think, you know, just to give one example, um, the way that campaigning would change, and I think you, you sort of hinted at this, this is what chapter nine is about, is that politicians would go everywhere they would not just focus, you know, there's a big fear that, oh, well, if you have a popular vote, they'll just go to the big cities and, and they'll just, they'll, they'll, they'll vacuum up all the votes from the cities. Um, I'm a little offended as, as, as a resident of a big city, I'm offended that somehow my vote should not matter as much as a vote of somebody in Kansas or, you know, Idaho. I mean, we're all Americans, we should all count equally in the vote for the president. Um, but, but the actual truth is even putting that aside, Candidates don't do this. You ask any campaign, like ask a gubernatorial campaign, which is a, sort of a proxy for what a national popular vote campaign would be like, because in a gubernatorial campaign, the candidates go everywhere in the state because why every vote matters in that election and all the votes count the same wherever they're cast. You go everywhere. Even if you know you're going to a region that you're gonna lose, you just wanna lose that region by less. So yeah. this is this is campaigning 101. I'm not like not, I didn't I didn't discover anything here. This is what campaign managers say all the time. It's like, of course we do that. And if we had to win votes the way that governors have to win votes, we would campaign the same way. So in fact, they would go all over the country and you see that you see that reflected in the way they campaign right now in battleground states, say where they do have to win all the votes in the state or, or more of the votes the, the majority of votes in the state, um, or at least a plurality to win all those states electors. Yeah, and in fact, we see it here in California where you often have a Northern California candidate and a Southern California candidate, and it's won by Democrats going to the Central Valley where they may not have the majority support, but they certainly, there's the, those are the voters that count and matter for swinging the election. Exactly. Every vote matters. And when every vote matters and every voter matters, candidates have to retool their campaigns. They have to rethink how they're going to appeal to the country. They have to redesign their policy platforms to appeal to a wider array of Americans. To me, that is a better way to run a modern representative democracy than the way we do it today. Would it have an impact on, uh, on third and fourth parties getting in if, if, we, if we got rid of the Electoral College? 
I think it's a very interesting and complicated question that political scientists talk about endlessly. Um, on the one hand, the quick answer is, sure, it could, because right now there's no incentive or very little incentive, I should say, for these uh, independent or third parties or fourth parties to get in the race. Why is that? Goes back to the winner take all rule. You gotta win the most votes in a state to get any electoral votes at all. The most third party candidates just can't do that, right? Do you remember Ross Perot in 1992? Ross Perot um, won something like 20 million votes in the country that didn't translate into a single electoral vote. And that's because his support was wide, but not deep. He didn't have enough voters in any one state to win electoral votes. So he spent tons of money. He won millions of votes, 20 million Americans. That's a lot of people. And yet they don't get represented at all because of the winner take all rule. So there aren't many third parties right now that really try, or they try, they, they end up playing a spoiler effect as we saw in 2016 with uh, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson. And as you saw in 2000 with Ralph Nader, you know, that's basically the role they play. If you had a popular vote, there's really not that disincentive. There, you know, parties can, you know, candidates can just jump in and say, "I'll, I'll win as many votes as I can." Um, and and a lot of people have expressed concern about that, saying, "Oh, what's going to happen is there's going to be 16 candidates. They're all gonna they're gonna split the vote, and the person who wins is going to have 25 percent of the vote." I mean, I understand that concern. I don't think anybody wants a president who is supported by an extremely small um, percentage of of Americans. However, we've been willing to elect presidents who don't even win the popular vote in the country <laughs> for the last 200 years. So I feel like we can adapt. Um, but the bigger, you know, I mean, one solution to that is, is, a, is a, an innovation called ranked choice voting. And, and that, that requires a whole other discussion. But the bottom line is it, it, um, ranked choice voting is a method that has been adopted in, in the Bay Area um, and in uh, uh, several, uh, maybe a dozen or more other jurisdictions around the country. And I think it's a brilliant innovation. At, at what it fundamentally does is it allows for multiple candidates and multiple parties to participate in an election and for voters to express their true feelings about which candidates and which parties they like best without causing the spoiler effect that I mentioned. So I won't get into the mechanics of it, but the the, the, the the bottom line idea is it, it, it allows for an election of a candidate with majority support, but it still allows for a, a, a more, a, a more, a fuller rep, uh, expression of, of voters actual desires. So they're not feeling like they're just choosing the worst of two evils. Can I ask a, a lesser of two evils? Yes. Um, you've given us an amazing tour of the history and political implications of the electoral college. We had another question, which I think is a good question, which is, how do you become a member of the New York Times editorial board? Uh -huh. uh, what's it like? Uh, and maybe we can wrap up a little bit about you uh, as we as we as we wrap up our time together. Sure. Um, I mean, my path to the board was unusual. Uh, it used to be a very different. When I joined the board, which was seven years ago, it was some of the uh, uh, most esteemed names in uh, sort of of the previous, you know. Uh, 50 years of, of Times journalists, uh, I, I was amazed, I just was amazed to just be sitting around the table with some of these people who had started their careers um, when, you know, John Kennedy was president. Um, uh, that, that was, there was a traditional way that sort of people moved up through the newsroom and ended up on the editorial board later in their careers and really had a lot to offer in, with regard to their sort of having spent so much time around politics and news. Um, Today, the board is, is, has changed quite a bit. Uh, I was the youngest member when I joined, and I'm now, I think, the second oldest. Uh, the board is a, a really um, di a different group of people now. It's, um, it, it has more women and more people of color. It's changing. It's, I, I love it. I, I really feel um, 
uh, excited by my colleagues and we have great discussions. Uh, we, we basically, we are the voice of the, the institutional voice of the paper. That's what we represent. And when we write unsigned editorials, um, we, are, we are representing that voice. We also write um, our own signed pieces under our names, which where we're allowed to kind of take, uh, stake out positions that maybe the board wouldn't take as a whole. Um, but you know, it's, a, it's an institution that used to be uh, de rigueur in papers across the country. Um, and it's, it's been um, fading as I think the uh, opinion uh, industry has has proliferated in the internet era. Um, to me, that's somewhat sad because I, I really like the opportunity to find a few people where I really trust their instincts and I trust their opinions. But it's still a re really exciting job, and it's it's um, it's rare to have uh, such a committed and wonderfully uh, educated and diverse group of people who are sitting together hashing out their opinions on the issues of the day and then writing sometimes 800 or 1,000 words about it, uh, sometimes on very tight deadline. That's, that's just a thrill all the time. So, um, you know. How many people usually write the articles? Is it, is it a collaborative effort? Is it like a? The discussion before the article is collaborative. The writing is usually done by one or at most two writers. There have been a few pieces where we have quite a few people chipping in, but most of the editorials that are unsigned are written by a single uh, author and then edited, um, you know, so they, they go through several rounds of editing as does, as do all pieces at the times. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I came there, I, I had been in law school. I worked, I, I returned, I, I was a journalist before law school. Uh, I went to law school. I returned to journalism. I worked at the New York Observer, as, uh, uh, Carell said, um, under a, a young, uh, boy publisher named Jared Kushner. You may have heard of him. Uh, he, I had to report to him for a couple of years. Uh, that's a whole other story. Um, and then, and then the Times job became available, uh, covering that it was primarily covering the Supreme Court when I first joined. And I just said that that seems like an amazing opportunity. And I, I, I applied for it and uh, auditioned for it. And I ended up getting the job. I was, I feel very lucky and I've had a, a really great time. Well, uh, thank you for your work on the board and thank you again, uh, for this book. It is a, uh, a fantastic read just of the, American political history and our current state of affairs um, enjoyable and gives us a path to actually having uh, a majority of Americans get to pick who their president is, which is, uh, seems to be a, a novel idea. But thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.